Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton, the Inflation Guy, and I'm your host. And today on the podcast, we're going to talk about a concern that, that sort of rippled through the, uh, through the ranks of the market prognosticators recently, and that's persistent weakness coming out of China, um, both in terms of the fact that it really has never quite rebounded in the way people thought it would after the lockdowns were lifted uh, after COVID, but but even more recently, um, some problems related to the, the property markets in China and some more deep-rooted problems with banks. Anyway, it's led to a bunch of concerns about persistent Chinese weakness and what that could cause, what that could mean in terms of a global recession or disinflation in the U.S. and whatnot. And I wanted to talk about why it is that that doesn't really bother me and concern me all that much. But before I get into that, uh, a word from our sponsor and the trivia question. First, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility is sponsored by Simplify ETFs, a fast-growing ETF shop democratizing access to the most sophisticated alternative strategies. With diversifying strategies like market-neutral equity long-short, managed futures, and multi-strat quant, Simplify has a suite of compelling tools to help address the biggest concerns with the classic 60-40 portfolio. Check out their website at simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. And as always, uh, thanks to Simplify. Um, it's a good shop, and I really advocate uh, you taking a look at some of their products. Um, and now the trivia question. A very short one today. By what name was Ele- Eleonora Eleonora Fagan better known? Let's say that again. Eleonora Fagan. By what name was she better known? Okay. So we're talking about the weakness in China. Not so much talking about the weakness in China, but on what it necessarily, what it means for growth in the U.S. and the Western world and what it means for inflation in the Western world. So in recent months, data out of China has been you know, somewhat concerning, uh, if not to us, at least to, to Chairman Xi. Uh, you know, there has for some time been a property bubble in China. And, and as with the U.S. Uh, back in 2008 and 9. You know, the property bubble in China is is tied into the banks and the strength of, of the banks. And so the entire financial system um, is is based on assets. And when uh, one uh, aspect, one portion of those assets gets out of whack, um, then there is potential pain. When, when it goes from out of whack back to in whack, uh, that means markdowns. It means necessarily bad things for banks and, and asset holders generally. So, um, and so that that property bubble in China, starting with Evergrande and and you know, going on other places, but um, is in the process of disinflating, maybe even deflating. That's not really the our topic here per se. Whether or not um, the Excess of of debt uh, beyond what is serviceable unwinds gently, as certainly Chi is is hoping for, or 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 not so gently. Uh, a period of slow growth from China is is happening. It appears inevitable. 
you know, I think for a long time, many people have been expecting this big rebound out of China after the COVID lockdowns were lifted, and and it never really has happened. Um, and part of it is because of these property problems. Um, recently, trade figures out of China showed some weakness, and that's partly because of the nearshoring, um, the new nearshoring trend, friendshoring trend uh, from. Uh, a lot of the Western countries. And so these things, combined with the big longer-term problem of, of Chinese demographics, um, means that at least in the near term, China is likely to undergo a period of, of, of slow growth. Um, now, whether or not this is a recession, I mean, keep in mind that a recession when it comes to China doesn't necessarily mean negative quarters of growth, although it may in this case. Um, it means that you go from growing, you know, six percent a year to one percent a year, and that's that's a a recession. But um, in this case, if you've got a property bubble that implodes, um, you could you could very realistically get a recession. Now, again, this is not a free market Western economy. Whatever implode implosion happens in China won't happen at the same velocity um, as it will in the Western world, but it's still real. And so whether or not it, 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 that bubble deflates slowly or quickly, it means a period of below trend growth for China. And so the question is, you know, what does that mean? You know, China's economy is so huge. I mean, it's comparable to the other great economies in the developed world, that the assumption is that if China sneezes, the world will catch a cold, precipitating a global recession and disinflation. And that old phrase, you know, if the U.S. sneezes, the world gets a cold, now can be said about you know, several other economies that are of similar size. I want to provide, though, some perspective based on prior historical events that should uh, you know, illuminate a little bit what we can expect in the Western world as this process plays out in China. And, and it it's not going to be uh, the the process of a recession in China causing global recession is not likely to play out that way. Um, it is although the economy is quite large in China, it's a very different type of economy than say the economy of the United States. Um, and and I'll give you like I said, I'll give you a historical example and. And sort of show you why it is that this is true. But the bottom line is this: that there are producer economies and there are consumer economies, and there's some that are kind of balanced. But, um, uh, but that's sort of the the bottom line here is that we, the U.S., has a consumer economy. China has a producer economy, and that has that means greatly disparate effects when China has a recession compared to when. The United States or, or Europe um, or a consuming economy has a recession. And as an illustration of this point, I want to go back to a historical uh, analog, if you will. There's no historical analog, historical analog to China with the size that China is, but but there's a, a general uh, uh, analog that I think is is worth looking at, and that is the the uh, the Asian contagion crisis of 1997, 1998. 
And again, it sort of helps to be old and experienced and have gone through these sorts of things. I know there are people listening right now who are thinking, oh, okay, I remember the Asian contagion. Remind me, remind me. And there are other people who are like, don't really remember Asian contagion at all. Um, I'll say that I'm, I am uh, taking some of my recollection from the book I wrote a number of years ago called uh, Maestro My Ass, um, which is, is sort of out of print. You can get it in you know, a Kindle version uh, now, but it's, it's out of kind of regular print. Um, but uh, in the book, I kind of go through a number of different economic um, occurrences during the Greenspan Fed. And so I describe in here kind of what happened during the Asian contagion, because it wasn't really what we thought was going to happen. So the way that period unfolded is, is it started in August of 1987 when the Thai bot collapsed, and the bot is the, the uh, Thai currency. Um, and in, in the U.S., nobody paid any attention to that. We don't do a lot of uh, commerce with, with Thailand, actually probably large from Thailand's perspective, but from, from the U.S. perspective, not so much. And it really barely registered. Shortly after that, the Korean won broke, and we do a lot more business with Korea. So many more people started to pay attention. But still, it wasn't like in the general, you know, outside of Wall Street, people weren't really paying attention. Um, and then uh, on October 23rd of 1997, the Hang Seng, which is the Hong Kong Stock Index, fell 14% intraday. Be investors had started to be concerned that Hong Kong might release the peg to the U.S. dollar. At the time, the Hong Kong dollar was linked to the U.S. dollar. And, and that fear led the Hang Seng to, to drop dramatically. And it then rallied back 7%, then it plunged again, whereupon the Dow Jones in the U.S. dropped 550-something points, about 7%. That was the largest point loss at the time for the Dow. And even though it was only 7%, that was still an awfully big single-day move. Uh, but it was enough to get people's attention, for sure. And, and that's when people started calling it the Asian contagion. But the Asian contagion was always more about contagion in markets and less about contagion amongst the economies. Although the Pacific Rim economies, you know, were all, all had uh, some reasonable level of integration or not necessarily integration, but, but correlation because they all had the same customers um, and they all had the same investors. And so when Thailand goes down and then there's pressure on Korea, that starts to cause pressure on, on all of the, the former Asian tigers. Um, uh, and so as one after another of those Asian tigers began to stumble, then the fear began to spread and you started getting these predictions of a wave of deflation that was about to hit our shores. Now, those predictions were always kind of hyperventilated, but at the time they were believable uh, because we were watching, you know, real-time serious collapses in markets and economies overseas. Um, and it never, but it never really hit us here in the U.S. And and the reason why I think is very important understand because it's relevant here in the case of China. Now, in one way, Thailand and, and, and Asia in general was, was different then than it is now. Um, it, it's still the case that 
that the U.S. export sector, the our global trade sector, external sector, is much smaller than with many other economies. At the time, back in 1997, total GDP was about 8.28 trillion, with exports being about a, a little bit below one trillion. So the export sector was about you know 12 percent of the economy. And so you could just sort of do some math and say, if our exports fell by a third, because you know the entire all of our export partners, all of our trade partners, just like you know, drop by a third and just stop buying stuff, um, then that would mean a drop in our growth of four percent. Pretty serious uh, recession. Okay, but again, that requires everybody to just stop buying from us, a- and moreover not just stop buying from us, but continue selling to us, you know, which is unlikely. If their economies are imploding, it's probably partly because they're not selling as much to us. Um, and so, you know, back then in the second quarter of 1997, imports were slightly above $1 trillion. So then, as now, we import more than we export. Um, and, so, and so when you had... Um, if, if, and the reason that matters, okay, the reason that we, we care not just about what Thailand and Korea and Japan, what they're buying from us, we care about what we're selling to them is that GDP is the sum of consumption plus investment plus government spending plus net exports, okay, exports minus imports. And and so you have to look at both sides of that equation. And then if if you're if a foreign economy is collapsing, it's not only selling, you know, buying less from us, which hurts us, but it's selling less to us. And so th- that net effect is what you really care about. And so if when you consider that our net export sector was only 12% of the economy, you had to come up with some really bizarre uh, occurrences, uh, combinations of things to posit a serious impact, direct impact on the U.S. economy. Now, there could always be knock-on effects and things like that, but but to actually get to the idea that that the Asian contagion itself could directly impact the U.S., it was never going to be a big deal. But moreover, there is a there's another part of this. And again, this is going to be relevant to China in just a second. Um, and that is that weakness in, in the global economy, and especially in the producing economies, tends to reduce pressure on commodity prices because there's less competition for those commodities. And that has a net stimulative effect on consuming economies like the U.S., uh, the U.S. is a net importer of economically sensitive commodities. This is less true now, but it was because we we produce more energy than we used to. But by the time, uh, you know, of that $1 trillion or so in imports that we had in 1997, about $71 billion of that was petroleum and petroleum products, and another $134 billion was imports of industrial supplies and materials other than petroleum and products. So about 20% of our imports were important industrial commodities. And, and so what that means is that since we are 
net consumers of the product of the rest of the world and especially its raw materials than when countries that are not major that are not necessarily major trading partners of ours have economic troubles it's actually stimulative to us because it, it reduces pressure on those those uh, commodities that we need to consume so what actually happened then back in 1987 as everyone's calling for the econ- you know, for, for us to enter a recession is that the economy began to strengthen you know six months in well Actually, in December of 97, we had this big blowout employment report, and it started sort of confusing people. But the economy kind of got, got stronger and stronger, and six months after the Hang Seng collapse, we, we were starting to suffer from shortages uh, in the U.S. and worried about inflation. And the U and and the Fed was not tightening as would normally be the case in sort of the, you know an economic ex, you know a strong economic expansion with shortages because they were concerned about the Asian contagion, which was going the opposite direction. It was making us stronger rather than than weaker. Now, ultimately, this all got, this all led into the internet bubble. And so a lot of the overheating and, uh, and you know, that growth is sort of, after the fact, we sort of look back and say, well, it was obviously the internet bubble. Um, and to be sure, the irrational exuberance of the internet bubble was responsible for the the you know blow off in in markets to crazy highs and crazy multiples. Okay, the irrational exuberance in markets themselves, but the economy was strong not because of the of of the internet, because at the time, although the internet was hugely important to markets, it really it wasn't as large uh, an impact on our economy. The economy was strong partly because Asia and the producing nations had had lots of troubles, which made commodities cheaper for us, which allowed us to grow faster than we otherwise would have. So let's bring it back to today. Um, so much of remembering that so much of what happened in the late 90s started with the Asian cont- contagion, which actually helped us. So what happens if China uh, struggles further? Okay, so, folks, that's a boon for the West. It's a boon for the produce, for the consuming economies. You can think of most economies, as I said earlier, as being either producer economies uh, or consumer economies. And there are some more balanced economies, but you can sort of think of, of econ- economies sort of arrayed in that way. And the important part is that consumption is downstream from production. Which means that when a consumption, when a consumer economy suffers, then it, then so do the producing economies because the producing economies sell to the consuming economies. But the reverse isn't true. If a producing economy suffers of its own accord from internal, for internal reasons, it does not hurt the consuming economies. In fact, the more desperate a producing economy gets, it's the better it is for the consumers. I mean, look, we all we all like, you know, the uh, the inventory overstock sale, right? I mean, as consumers, you see, you know, big sign up because you know, we bought too much inventory. We have to blow it out now. That's a great thing for a consumer, and that's what happens when a producing economy is having problems. It's good for the for the consuming economies. Now, that doesn't mean that oil prices necessarily will fall. It just means that. 
for a given level of growth in the West, oil prices can be lower than they would be if producing economies were pulling on the same barrels of oil. I still think oil prices are going to rise from here because they're they're just too low for the level of, of current consumption. You don't need China to explode higher to put higher more pressure on, on oil. That's just happening and that's going to continue to happen. But oil prices will be lower for a given level of Western growth than they would otherwise be because the producing countries are not, and in particular in this case China, um, are not growing as fast. Okay, so we compete for these commodities. And so when, uh, even though we sort of, you know, share economic growth back and forth, we buy Chinese goods uh, and, and, and to some extent they buy our goods. But, um, and so we're, we're intermingled in that way, but we're also, we, we're competitors on the commodity side of things. And so to the extent that China, as a big consumer of commodities, is growing slower, it's actually a good thing for for Western growth. Um, now, the fact that part of the weakness in China is because of China trade um, bespeaks something other than property. And that's that, you know, this trend towards nearshoring or friendshoring or wherever, whatever you want to call it and bringing production that had been outsourced to China, bringing it back to, to whether it's to the U.S. or to you know, Latin America or whatever to, you know, the same hemisphere, um, you know, that also tends to, to pressure China's economy, but it doesn't, but to the extent it's moving to another producing economy or balancing us and it's going into more production, it isn't necessarily uh, as, as positive for us. But, um, oh, and, and, and by the way, it, it helps that we're, uh, the U.S. is, or can be self-sufficient uh, in energy. So I don't really worry about a collapse in China. Um, I worry about a lot of things related to China, and I worry about the long-term demographic challenges, but I don't really worry about collapse. You know, I don't think that, um, you know, in a, uh, in a market that's not entirely free, I think these things can, you know, tend to unfold more slowly. Um, but if China does have bigger problems, the thing to remember is that we buy from them. And so it is not, it is a good thing, not a bad thing for U.S. growth. And it's a, it puts more pressure on U.S. inflation. It doesn't decrease it. By the way, um, the chairman, and by that I mean Chairman Xi, not Chairman Powell, definitely understands this. And that's one of the reasons that he's been trying to balance China's economy for a long time. It's not there yet. And that's why this is an issue. Um, but again, Important to understand that the that the the implications for the U.S. are kind of the opposite of what you're probably being told. Is it disinflationary um, or deflationary? Well, it wasn't in 1997. So learn that history, and don't wait for lower interest rates and lower inflation because of contagion from China. And so that's all for today, except for the answer to the trivia question. And the and the question was. Uh, what by what name was Eleanor Fagan better known? And those music fans among you will know that that is the name of Billie Holiday. Okay, so that's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, refer others, forward this podcast on around. 
You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com, and you can subscribe for free to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Uh, if you um, have an inflation challenge, Enduring Investments specializes in inflation challenges and managing inflation-related assets. So visit Enduring Investments. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy.